Tonight we are going to kind of pick up where we left off last week, as I said we were going to do. Um, tonight might be a little bit more of a uh, history lesson connected to Scripture than just diving into the Scriptures, but we're, we're continuing to just see some of what we talked about last week and that every generation that has ever lived and I think that ever will live on this earth has a mark of the beast moment. And for those listening, we talked last week how the mark of the beast isn't just a physical thing, but it is a spiritual thing and making a choice to either obey or to disobey God. One or the other. To disobey God is to take a mark of the beast. So picking up on that, I'm going to take you to Josephus, who was a Jewish historian around the time of Christ, and show you kind of what he was saying going on in history, especially with the Roman kingdom, which again is that fourth beast of Daniel, what was going on at that time. And you're going to see a lot of similarities to even some things that have gone on in our day, or are going on now, or went on after this period. It says here in the Wars of the Jews... Speaking of, it says, now Caius Caesar, I wonder if they, uh, he did so grossly abuse the fortune he had arrived at as to take himself to be a god. Not uncommon, many of the Roman, pretty much all the Roman emperors took themselves to be god. Really the kings of the past often did that. They did it in Egypt, they did it in Babylon. So this isn't just at the time of Christ, I think you can go all the way back and look at how many people have claimed to be God. How many emperors, how many pharaohs, how many kings claiming to be God, going against the word of God. It says, and to desire to be so called also, and to cut off those of the greatest nobility out of his country. He also extended his impiety as far as the Jews, Accordingly, he sent Petonius with an army to Jerusalem to place his statues in the temple and commanded him that in case the Jews would not admit of them, he should slay those opposed it, who opposed it and carry all the rest of the nation into captivity. So here we see that not only was he claiming to be a god, but set up an image, an idol, an abomination in the temple and expected people to worship it to, to give it homage. And if you did not, then you would be slain. Same type of thing we see with Antiochus prior to this. Just another example throughout history. And we could look at many others. These are just some of the ones of the past. This would have been <coughs> probably... I don't know exactly, but somewhere around 70-ish A.D. or before, a little before, I think. We have here uh, Tacitus in the Annals. This is A.D. 64 here. Um, basically, Rome had been burned, and the whispering around the town was that Nero is the one that burned it. Well, to take the heat off of himself, no pun intended, he began to persecute the Christians and saying it was the Christians that had started the fire. And so this is basically what he did in response to get the heat off of himself. 
All human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report of all of, you know, blaming him, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Very much an antichrist uh, way of living here. Just like Hitler said to the Jews that, you know, you're the problem for our economy. And people believed it. He spread the, the lie to get people to go against the Jews. Very much like we were hearing just two years ago, Christians, you're the reason COVID is spreading because you're not afraid of death. Therefore, you're being irresponsible. You're the problem. That kind of propaganda. This is nothing new. Under the, there's nothing new under the sun, as it says in Ecclesiastes. He continues and he says, Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty then. Upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. In other words, he was getting people to turn in their own neighbors, their own family members. Sounds like Jesus saying that, you know, mother will betray Daughter and daughter will betray mother and father and son, the same thing. So, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. It's not that you burned down the city, even though they didn't. They weren't even accusing. That was just a ruse to get people upset with them. You hate mankind. You are against the world. I find it so illogical and amazing how when any tragedy, and I've mentioned this before, when any tragedy takes place, it's Christians that are the ones that are pouring out money and going and taking time off to go help recover from a tornado or a hurricane or whatever the case might be. That the church is probably the most benevolent, kind organization that's out there. And yet we are portrayed as the most bigoted, hate-filled, you know, homosexuality today. You hate mankind. You hate people. You hate homosexuals. You're filled with hate and bigotry. See, it doesn't make sense. It's, a, it's quite the opposite. And the same thing was going on here. Nothing's new under the sun. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt, to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. This was going on even in the time of Jesus. Before this, the Romans would kill people on the crosses, oftentimes the, the, uh, what looks like a capital T, a tau, that's where we get the cross from, and they would line the road into Jerusalem with these, light them on fire at night so that anybody coming in not only would have their light, you know, their, their path lit, but would be a reminder to toe the line of the government. You can go all the way back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Unless you bow down to this image, you will burn. You see, nothing new under the sun. Every generation has experienced this in some way, shape, or form. 
It is a mark of the beast situation. And as you go on and read in these annals, you'll see that bottom line was that if you abandoned Christ, you could keep your position in society. You could go to the marketplaces and you could buy and you could sell. But if you did not, then you would be marked and that mark meant you were not allowed to buy or sell in the market. You lost your privileges. Sounds like a mark of the beast moment. And yet, this is a secular historian recording this. This is not a Christian man. He's just recording the events of history. We're going to move to the second century. Now, this is not very long ago, by the way. I just think about this. This is less than really 20 people living 100 years of age. That takes you back 2,000 years, and that's not even 2,000 years here. 20 people gets you back to the point that this was happening. All of history, you have 60 people living 100 years of age. The entire history of the world can be summed up with 60 people. Makes time really seem pretty short, doesn't it? Well, in the second century here, we have plenty. In his letter to Trajan, he, in about 112 AD, he says, Having never been present at any trials of the Christians, I am unacquainted with the methods and limits to be observed, either in examining or punishing them. What he's doing here is Pliny is writing to Trajan because he didn't know how to handle these Christians. And he'd never dealt with it before, so he's writing, What do you do? How do you examine them? How do you punish them? Now, Trajan was no friend of Christianity at all. And so what he's going to do is ask, do you treat children different than adults? Uh, you know, what do you do if they plead guilty? What do you do if they are innocent? What do they do if they change their mind after saying they were Christians? All of these things. Here's what he says. Whether any difference is to be made on account of age or no, no distinction allowed between the youngest and the adult. If it's a five-year-old, do I treat him just like an adult? He says, whether repentance admits to a pardon. If they recant and say, I don't believe in Jesus, do you let him go? Or if a man has been once a Christian, it avails him nothing to recant. Whether the mere profession of Christianity, albeit without crimes, or only the crimes associated therewith are punishable. In all these points, I am greatly doubtful. So basically, you know, if a Christian, if you, you know, you say, well, I was a Christian, but I'm not anymore. Is that okay? What do I do with him? Does the guilt remain? In the meanwhile, the method I have observed towards those who have been denounced to me as Christians is this. I interrogated them whether they were Christians. And if they confessed it, I repeated the question twice again, adding the threat of capital punishment. If they still persevered, I ordered them to be executed. In other words, are you a Christian? Yes. Are you sure? Because let me tell you, if you're a Christian, I'm going to kill you. Are you sure you're a Christian? Yes. I'm going to ask you one more time, because if you are, I'm going to kill you. Yes. That was his practice. I'm going to give you three strikes and you're out. My wife and I were talking here this week about Cassie Bernard. If you remember one of the first major school shootings in our country, and I still can see in my mind the, the video from the library 
when or lunchroom, I don't remember where it was, but where she got down on her knees, you can't hear the audio, but we know from the testimony of others that were there, there was a gun put to her head and she was asked if she was a Christian. And you see her clearly in the video say yes. And he shoots her. A mark of the beast moment. Cassie had her mark of the beast moment. You see, it comes in many different forms. It's all the same. It's all the same spirit of the Antichrist that gets us to disobey God, to deny God, and on the thread of your life. He goes on and says, For whatever the nature of their creed might be, I could at least feel no doubt that contumacy and inflexible obstinacy deserved chastisement. There were others also possessed with the same infatuation, but being citizens of Rome, I directed them to be carried thither. So you can see that he's irritated by the steadfastness to Christ. The ridiculous idiocracy or idiocy of, you know, how, how can these people be so infatuated with a dead man? Well, he's not dead. He's alive. But in Pliny's mind, that's what he was thinking. It just This infatuation, it makes no sense. Now, if they were a Roman citizen, I'll send them on, you know, because they have special privileges. But even they would die. He goes on, those who denied they were or ever had been Christians, basically those who had a mark of the beast moment and decided to take the mark, who repeated after me an invocation to the gods and offered adoration with wine and frankincense, an abomination set up in the corner of the temple to bow down and worship Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Azariah, Mishael, right? Here's an image. Worship it. Which I had ordered to be brought for that purpose together with those of which gods who finally cursed Christ, none of which... Acts, if it is said, those who are really Christians can be forced into performing. These I thought it proper to discharge. Isn't that interesting? Here's an ungodly man, and he even realizes a true Christian will not be able to be forced into performing an act of bowing down to a pagan idol. Even the ungodly know. Well, if they're really a Christian. You've probably heard of the story, true or not, I don't know. But I remember hearing it years ago about whether, whether it was Russia or some other persecuted country where these guys came in with guns and went around the room saying, are you a Christian, are you a Christian, or whatever. And if anybody said they were a Christian or not a Christian, they were allowed to go. And after the room had been cleared and there were a few standing there that were willing to die anyway, they put their guns down and said, now tell me the truth because we know you are the real Christians here. Something along those lines. I still, one of my favorite books that I've ever read 
back in high school was called The Persecutor. Sergei something. And he was a KGB officer. And he would go in and find out where the Christians were meeting and literally beat them to a pulp. And he writes how he defected to the United States. And he writes how he could not understand how sometimes, just a few days later, he'd be beating up the same person he just beat up before. And he thought, kind of like what Pliny is saying, the infatuation. But that kept nagging his mind, thinking, why? What is it about this Jesus that these guys are willing to do this? Long story short, one time he goes and there was this girl and he goes back and he's about ready to punch her. And somebody grabs his arm and he's a, he swings around ready to punch whoever it is who's stopping him and nobody was there. And that bothered him. And he couldn't figure out what was going on. And he gives his testimony to the, eventually he becomes a Christian and then he defects to America. But to hear of the persecution and what there were people in Russia. And this is a true story, by the way. The, the Russians and, and these Christians who had their mark of the beast moment but refused to stop meeting. I mean, we, a couple of years ago, people were ready to stop moving on threat of a fine, let alone getting your face punched in. Mark of the beast moments. As Christians, if we deny Christ, Pliny said they must not be a real believer. Now, on one hand, I can say, okay, I know, but Jesus is loving, he's forgiving, he's this, and you know, he's merciful. Yes, there is that truth, but I don't want that pendulum to go too far. Because I also know scripture says if anyone is ashamed of me, if they deny me, I will deny him before my father in heaven. Pliny seemed to understand that. Do we understand that? Have we really examined our heart and meditated upon will I give my life? Hebrews talks about those who did not shrink from death. It says that yet, you know, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood against sin. What are you willing to do to resist sin? Well, I got a little uncomfortable there, so I gave in. But Hebrews talks about resisting to the point of shedding your blood. Have any of you done that yet? I don't know how that would be, but you know what I'm saying. That we need to look at sin. We need to look at the disobedience of God as such an abomination and such a, a, a terrible thing that we would be willing to die and shed blood before we do that sin before we deny Christ. And I think denying Christ comes in many different forms. Not just, are you a Christian? Uh, no. I think every time we take a willful act of disobedience, 
It's a mark of the beast moment. Now again, like I said last week, do not take me wrong. I'm not saying that, oh, you disobeyed, you took the mark of the beast, now you die. You're no longer a Christian. I'm not saying that. There is forgiveness. However, there is an attitude of our heart that needs to be put in check to say, is my heart, do I love this life so much that I would be willing to consistently, to save my own skin, be disobedient and deny Christ? Those are questions we all have to ask. Peter had his moment. Peter had a mark of the beast moment and said, you know, you were with him. No, I don't know the man. Three times. And then the rooster crowed. And if you remember, that wasn't cockle-doodle-doo. That was the trumpeter on the mountain the, at the temple. <coughs> and Peter could have... I'll tell you, I think this still, to me, is the most vivid and powerful visual I have in Scripture. When he denies him the third time, one of the gospel records that Jesus looked at him, and when their eyes met, Peter ran off and wept. And I think sometimes that's what we need to realize is God is always looking at you. It's easier, easier for us to deny Christ if he's not there watching. But the Bible says he's always watching. Do you really believe that? But that visual to me of Peter looking and saying, no, I don't know him and looking, and I can just see Jesus looking back at him. And I wonder, was it like, I told you so? I doubt it. I think it was in sadness and in mercy and pleading. It's, it's okay. I know. But boy, you want to talk about a knife in the heart. Well, I want you to know every time we, we take a choice of disobedience, it's the same thing. It's a denial of who Christ is in our life. It should be a knife in our heart. But like Peter was forgiven, so are we. Because we fail in Mark of the Beast moments on a near daily basis. In some way, shape, or form. But there does come a point where the heart is so seared. Your conscience is so seared. That... You live in a constant state of these little disobediences everywhere to where you're really not even feeling guilty. And you're not running off and weeping because you've denied Christ. You go on with your day as if nothing ever changed. Then you might want to examine your heart. Well, Pliny continues and he says, Others were who were named by that informer at first confessed themselves Christians. And then denied it true. They had been of the persuasion, but they had quitted it. Some three years, others many years, and a few as many as 25 years ago. Oh, I used to be a Christian, but not anymore. I, I you know, gave that up. They all worshipped your statue 
and the images of the gods and cursed Christ. These are those compromisers. They gave in and they were rewarded by the world. But let me tell you, the others that held firm were rewarded by Christ. A mark of the beast moment. For a time, they got what they wanted. But let me tell you, these people, they did not win. They did not receive a reward. There were even certificates that were given to those people who had worshipped. Again, to allow them to buy and sell. To clear their name. It was said that you needed to sacrifice to the Roman gods. And if you did, then you got your certificate of proof of homage that you paid. And then you could buy and sell in the markets. Almost sounds like a vaccine passport. If you do this, then, now again, just to be clear, I'm not saying that taking the vaccine was taking the mark of the beast. I am saying it is that pattern. Here we can see uh, Decius, or I don't know how his name is said here in the 200s. Here's a coin with his name on it. But he too, just like Nero, just like other emperors before him, by Christians was seen as an antichrist. Remember, John said that there are, will be many antichrists, and there are many now, and, but they're all pointing to one that will be. I was speaking this week with somebody who is a, a preterist, all out, 100% sold out preterist. That is that all of Revelation was fulfilled in 70 AD. And I was trying to tell him, I said, I think the preterist views are correct. It's just not the end game. You see, all of these historical examples did indeed fulfill in part what Scripture was talking about, but it's not the final fulfillment. It's a foreshadowing of it. And that's why we can go through history and give you one mark of the beast moment after another mark of the beast moment after another. Not long ago, they, and maybe it's really still not out of discussion, but talking about digital certificates for taking this vaccine. We're hearing now already talk about companies, you know, starting to say maybe we need this vaccine again, you know, or, or mandate it. It's coming back. Don't think we're out of the uh, out of trouble yet. Remember these headlines not too long ago, COVID-19 immunity certificates, everything to know about this controversial solution. Immunity certificates sometimes referred to as immunity passports or immunity cards are a form of identification to help mark people who have been infected with COVID-19, recovered, and developed antibodies of the disease. See, it's going to help mark you, a mark. Interesting. Okay, again, not saying this is the mark of the beast, but you see all the foreshadowings? You have it, it allows you to function in society just like they could in Rome. Now you can buy, now you can sell, now you can travel. 
You can go to your concerts and your movies. There are people who are willing to sell out to go to movies. Eusebius, talking about the Roman Emperor Diocletian, one of the worst emperors of persecuting the Christians, said it was in the 19th, 19th year of the reign of Diocletian in the month Distress, called March by the Romans, when the Feast of the Savior's Passion was near at hand. So Passover. That royal edicts were published everywhere, commanding that the churches be leveled to the ground and the scriptures be destroyed by fire, and ordering all those who held places of honor be degraded, and that the household servants, if they persisted in the profession of Christianity, be deprived of freedom. Boy, that too is an antichrist figure. He forced people to sacrifice to the gods. He was persecuting the saints, the Christians. And it's interesting that the edicts that he's talking about here were being carried out at the time of Passover. I remember at COVID, here in the United States, it was during Passover season that it was one of at its height moments. And it was the first time that synagogues were empty on Passover. That there were these edicts saying you're not allowed to meet, you're not going to do these things, and you're going to be uh, you know, shut down, you're going to be fined thousands of dollars. I, I'm sure you, most of you saw that pastor in Canada. Yeah, I mean, that man knows what he believes. I think of John MacArthur. I mean, I don't remember how many thousands of dollars he was being fined every day. But he refused to shut down. Eusebius goes on, such was the first edict against us. But not long after, other decrees were issued commanding that all the rulers of the churches in every place be first thrown into prison and afterwards by every artifice be compelled to sacrifice. There were many pastors that did go to jail. They were arrested. I saw many videos of them coming in and arresting the pastor out in their parking lot even because they were meeting in the parking lot in the United States. All you've got to do is sacrifice. In other words, give in. All you've got to do is say, we will not meet anymore. We will not preach anymore in the name of Jesus. Remember, that's what even the disciples, when they were arrested, were brought before you know, the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin there, and they said, all right, well, we're going to let you go, but do not speak anymore in this man's name. What was their answer? Judge for yourself whether it's right for me to obey man or obey God. They went out and preached. Who cares if they arrest me? <coughs> Guys, I believe fully that we're not done with these days. What we were seeing two years ago, we're not done with that. It comes around, it's going to come back around again. Where will you be? Masks may have been the first edict. 
But more will follow. What do you fear most? God or a virus? I, I think of Mother Teresa. I remember young, when I was younger hearing about stories of her going to lepers and just all these diseased people. How many of us would say, you know what, that person needs the gospel. I know that you know, pus is oozing out every place in his body and I could get that from him. Don't know what he has. It could be contagious. But she didn't put on some hazmat suit to go witness to these people. Can you imagine if Jesus did that with the leper? Oh, hold on, hold on. <laughs> let me get my mask on. All right, now let me come and minister to you. Now, don't get me wrong. I know, don't, don't let the pendulum go. But my point is, it's what's in our heart. I'm not saying we can't have common sense and that you can't wear a mask to go to evangelize to somebody. But what I'm saying is, what, where is our heart at? Do we fear this world and the things of this world, even the invisible things of this world, more than we trust God? Because when it comes to the mark of the beast moment, you have to be sold out for God and be willing to give it all, to surrender all. Eusebius goes on, the most divine Diocletian and Maximianus, or whatever, which enjoyed that the meetings of the Christians should be abolished. Many extortions and spoliations had been practiced by officials, and that those evils were continually increasing to the detriment of our provincials. Just like during COVID, meetings were being abolished. They went after the church in every way, financially, like I said, it wasn't even shedding blood. It was just emptying the pockets, the fines. MacArthur, again, I think the land that they had leased for 40 years all of a sudden was becoming unavailable. Churches were worried about their tax breaks. They're going to lose their 501c3 status. Just all of these things. Well, Ptolemy the Fourth. This is one of them that we talked about, or it was at the time period there, of Hanukkah, the Maccabees. You can read about it in 3 Maccabees, chapter 2, verse 27. Even before Christ, these things were going on. He proposed to inflict public disgrace on the Jewish community, and he set up a stone on the tower in the courtyard with this inscription, None of those who do not sacrifice shall enter their sanctuaries, and all Jews shall be subjected to a registration involving poll tax, into the status of slaves. Those who object to this are to be taken by force and put to death. Okay, you're going to be taxed. Your money put into slavery, uh, less, less of a citizen. Those who are registered are also to be branded on their bodies by fire with the ivy leaf symbol of Dionysus. And they shall also be reduced to their former limited status in order that he might not appear to be an enemy of all he inscribed below. But if any of them prefer to join those who have been initiated into the uh, mysteries, they shall have equal citizenship with the Alexandrians. So <coughs> those that were registered were be branded, <coughs> marked on their body. Now, by the way, Dionysus... Uh, would have been the son of Zeus. 
That's interesting because Zeus was the chief god. You might say the son of God. The point of all of this is you need to know the mark of God is to obey God, like we talked about last week. And anything that goes against God is a mark of the devil. It doesn't have to be physical. It can be spiritual as well. And that's why when I look at the mark of the beast, I'm not out there looking for barcodes, social security numbers, vaccine lot numbers, uh, you, you know, all of the things that are out there. I don't think that that is ultimately the mark of the beast. Could there be a mark that I, I think there will be a mark that is going to be put on your forehead or your hand. I physically think that it will be, I think that will be the case physically. But I think more identifiable than that is going to be what it causes your heart to compromise on, to go against God in some way. And that's how you're going to recognize it. The number is man's number, 666. Could that be literal? It very well could be, probably is. But symbolically, I believe that is because it is a man's number is falling short of perfection. Seven is the number of perfection, they say. 666. Three times, it's completely falling short of God. When you disobey God, when you turn your back on Him and deny Him, you are completely falling short of God. But with Christ in you, then Christ is the 777, you might say, in you. You've got his mark on your forehead, his mark on your hand, because his commandments have been put in your heart, as we talked about last week. It's going against that that makes you fall short of it. So, yes, I think there will be a physical mark, but it's more than that. And just because maybe... In your lifetime, you might see that, quite possibly, maybe. But even if you don't see that physical mark, don't forget there's a spiritual one that you might be taking right now as well. I find it interesting that as we went through Acts chapter 15, if you remember, that was when Peter in chapter 10 of Acts had um, basically brought Cornelius, a Gentile, into the church. The Holy Spirit had come to him, and it's like, wow, I mean, who are we to argue with the Holy Spirit? The Gentiles are chosen by God as well. So in Acts chapter 15, they all meet together to kind of discuss this because that is radical. That was about as radical as us saying Satanists can now come into the church. Well, by the way, they can if they repent and come to know Jesus. But that's how radical this was. And they go through and they have their meeting and they decide, well, this is what we're going to tell the Gentiles. 
Abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual laws. Sexual defilements. And then also, don't eat blood, don't eat strangled animals, don't eat food to sacrifice, sac- food sacrificed animals. Food laws. The two things that were told to the church coming in are food laws and porn laws, basically. Those were the two things. You could almost say those are two of the biggest issues that go on in Christianity today. Both of those laws are something that defiles the temple. You are now the temple. And so when it says, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation set up in the temple, does that mean that there will be a physical temple built where there will be a physical image Probably, I think so, yeah. But I also think on the spiritual side of it, there is also, Satan is trying to set up an abomination in the temple of God in your life, in your temple right now. Whether it be through pornography or through a defilement of your body in some way. As we were talking before, I can't help but think how many things are going on in the spiritual realm that we are clueless to. This week there was a six-year-old arrested because intentionally, purposely planned to kill, shoot a parent, a school, teacher, teacher, that's what it was, teacher, thank you, yeah. A six-year-old. I think that there is so much more that goes on in the spiritual realm that we have no idea. How many things is Satan trying to defile the temple of God and we don't even know? What I'm saying is the devil is subtle. And the devil wants to damage the temple of God. The things that we put into our body. There is, you know, as if you were here when I talked about um, supernatural selection. You are what you eat. That what you eat affects your children and grandchildren. Does Satan know things that we don't, that God has been trying to protect us from? Okay, There are genetic markers. If you eat nothing but ho-hos and ding-dongs, maybe you'll survive, but there is a high probability you just gave your grandchildren diabetes. Okay, that's, I mean, that's just what we've learned scientifically. What goes on by us not protecting the temple. Now again, there's a physical and there's a spiritual too. Okay? Don't, don't make it just a physical thing. What, goes, what do you allow to get into your temple through your eyes and through your ears? We are to protect the temple because it is to be holy. Well, we're going to do one verse to kind of prepare us for next week in closing out this and getting into chapter 14. Chapter 13 was focusing on all the evils and the doom of Satan and his followers, but chapter 14 is going to switch gear and it's just a sigh of relief. 
Okay, what we've seen so far is you got the dragon, then you got the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth, the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, all of this, yuck, yuck, yuck. And now chapter 14, we see deliverance and joy. So it's a breath of fresh air. And this is the only verse we're going to cover, but in chapter 14, verse 1, just to open it up, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. See the contrast? You end here in chapter 13, this evil and the mark of the evil, and now, but then I looked, and the Lamb of God, the prize, the focus, standing on Mount Zion, not this other beast as you're going to see that's going to be on seven hills. We'll see that later. But rather, Mount Zion. There's a, a clear contrast here. And with him, not these beasts, but 144,000 that we've talked about before, but that are marked by God. With God's name so when you follow the devil, his name, which is blasphemed, basically, is, is written on you in some way, shape, or form. But now you've got the name of God. You are Christ bearers. There's a reason you're called Christians. Christ is in the name. So as far as the book of Revelation goes, I think it's interesting. This is the only time Zion is mentioned now, Zion is mentioned in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, or is in Jerusalem, Jerusalem is mentioned, but Zion is the only time here in Revelation it's used. But there are so many prophecies talking about Zion. Just look at the promises and what we have to look forward to here with just this one verse in chapter 14 to, to end on a breath of fresh air. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one. Look at all of the, the swamp today that needs drained, that's gathering against God's people, gathering against God. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. In chapter 13, you got the beast and you know, the hordes of Satan trying to get the mark of you know, the devil on everybody, but then the lamb appears. Here, this is exactly the, the same picture that's seen. The world is going after, but God laughs and says, I got this. I've installed my lamb on Mount Zion. I think that's why Zion is mentioned here in chapter 14, verse 1. He's trying to take you back to these promises to say, I got this. God has it. Psalm 48, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God. His holy mountain, which is Zion. It is beautiful in its loftiness. The joy of the whole earth God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. God is going to be your fortress. While all this evil, the ant, but then the lamb, 
and the 144,000 marked, they are protected. He is their fortress. Psalm 132, 13 and 14, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. There's where the Lamb will be. Hebrews 12, 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Or here in Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, in the last days, what we're reading about, the mountain of the Lord's temple, which was Zion, will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Sounds almost like a mark, doesn't it? Walking in his ways, in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So the law goes out from Zion, and yet what do we see? On Zion, these people who are marked. The Old Testament, as we talked about last week, you're marked by God putting his law in your heart. Isaiah 4, 3 through 6, Those who are left in Zion who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy. His name, God's name is on you. Which, by the way, is why the priests in the Old Testament had holy to the Lord on their, their mitres. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem, the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Judgment goes out from Zion. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and rain. So while all the evils of Revelation 13 are going on, Revelation 14, rest and peace in Zion, a fortress around you. Just a couple more slides. Or Zechariah 14. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Then, after this, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the days of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west. <coughs> We've seen this verse before. The timing, I don't know exactly, but the point is, is there's going to be trouble in Zion first. There's going to be Revelation 13 first, but then chapter 14. Isaiah 11, he will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Isaiah 18, 3, all you people of the world, you who live on the earth, when a banner is raised on the mountains, you will see it. And when a trumpet sounds, you will hear it. God is going to call you to Jerusalem, to Zion. Revelation 19, 7, on this mountain, 
Okay, Zion. The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. So basically the wedding banquet of the Lamb. In the last verse, Jeremiah 3, 16 and 17, the ark will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another be made. Man, we're so fascinated with the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant was the housing place of what? The manna, Jesus, the law, okay, and Aaron's staff, the Holy Spirit. Gee, what is the ark now? I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. You see, the covenant, it was the holding place of the covenant. I will put my law in their hearts, write it on their foreheads. I will be their God, they will be my people. You're the ark, folks. No wonder it's never going to come to mind or be missed. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. What's written on you? The name. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. No longer will there be a mark of the beast moment. Because it'll be over. That's what we have to look forward to here in chapter 14. All the yuck we've talked about, you see why it's worth, you know, not shrinking from death. Why it's worth not resist or, you know, resisting to the point of shedding our blood. So we'll get into chapter 14 next week. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for just your mercies that are so great each and every day. Father, we, we hear this truth from your word, but sometimes it's hard for it to settle into our understanding. So as we talked about here before in worship, that <clears throat> we pray for wisdom. We ask that you give us the wisdom to understand your word, the discernment, to walk through this world, that your word would light our path, that we would recognize sin for what it is, recognize the devil's schemes, and that your word would be on our hearts, on our lips, and in our mouths, in our minds, that we would proudly wear the mark of your name, and that we would resist the, the mark of the beast which seems to be at every corner. So empower us through your Holy Spirit, through your Holy Word. May you give us insight and discernment and wisdom. And may we, through the word of our testimony, and by the blood of the Lamb, stand against the devil. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.